Oh, you recognize that song, don't you? Deborah says that um, a Charlie Brown Christmas is my favorite ever. It makes me laugh, cry a bit, and smile throughout. Yeah, I watched it again. It'd been a long time. Uh, I've obviously listened to the soundtrack many, 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 many times. I mean, it's kind of a Christmas standard, but I hadn't seen the special in quite a while. And I forgot just how adult it was that, you know, some of the topics that it deals with, with Charlie Brown's sort of feelings about Christmas, his conflicts about the way the spirit of Christmas are actually very poignant in a lot of ways and certainly way above the level that I would have considered it as um, the first time that I saw it, like so many of us sometime in the 70s. Uh, after it had been on for quite a while, keep in mind, it debuted this week in 1965. So it's been 57 years since it first aired. And at the time, I mean, it was pretty rushed, according to the history. Uh, it was the first cartoon, the first televised special to feature this already very popular uh, cartoon strip, Peanuts. And uh, it was rushed for a number of reasons, all of them very interesting, but few e few expected that this would not be a one and done and that it would continue to be seen again and again and again. A reminder of what it was like. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a treat. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Now you remember, right? I mean, it has become one of those holiday traditions. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it at some point, or at least heard the soundtrack. And what's so remarkable about it is that you realize that Charlie Brown on its, the Christmas special on its own without the song soundtrack would have been lacking. The soundtrack without the special would have been lacking. And there's a reason for that, by the way, because part of that soundtrack wasn't even written for a Christmas special. But you put the two together and something very magical happens. In fact, in many ways, the soundtrack is probably more known than the actual special. You probably remember the songs quicker than you remember exactly what the scenes were. I remember the tree, obviously, that poor little tree. We had a few of those in my house over the years. Um, and then them dancing, of course, the school dance to Linus and Lucy. We played that earlier. Um, but there's such an incredible story behind how that special came together and how it made it to air 57 years ago this week and why the soundtrack is as good as it is. Someone who knows all about this is someone who's written about both, both Peanuts and its creator, Charles Schultz, as well as Vince Guaraldi, whose soundtrack became such an iconic part of the whole experience. Uh, film and TV critic Derek Bang is in Davis, California. He's the author of 50 Years of Happiness, a tribute to Charles M. Schultz, and a book called Vince Guaraldi at the Piano, as well as many others, and he joins me now. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. It's nice to be asked. Yeah, couldn't imagine a better person to talk to about uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, probably one of the most adored and uh, holiday specials of all. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I do. I, yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of like remembering when we first walked on the moon. Oh, wow. No, really. I, yeah. it, it's that strong. I was 10 years old. I was wearing pajamas. And it was a school night. And this is important because my parents were really strict about watching television on a school night. 
it was verboten, but they made an exception for Charlie Brown. And I, I didn't remember this. I went back and looked it up, and it was actually a Thursday night, December 9th, 1965. And I was transfixed, not just by the show itself, but also by the music, what I was hearing. I was not sophisticated enough at the age of 10 to recognize that I was hearing an established jazz performer. And of course, the credits at the end of the show zip past so quickly of course. that I didn't come close to catching his name. And I figured, well, we'll never be able to see that again, right? One and done. Right. <laughs> That's not yeah. quite the way it worked out. No, but it's interesting that at the time, and you obviously looked into the, you know this better than anyone. At the time, there was certainly no um, expectation that this would be turned into some sort of year after year, some sort of holiday tradition. No, not at all. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop-motion animation special, preceded Charlie Brown Christmas by one year. And when How the Grinch Stole Christmas came along a couple years later, the three of them combined kind of set the pattern for the, yes, absolutely, let's bring them back every single year. What's interesting about uh, about a Charlie Brown Christmas, too, is that compared to the great well the grinch is the grinch is an interesting tale needless to say but certainly compared to rudolph the red-nosed reindeer uh, charlie brown christmas is a it's an interesting story it's quite sophisticated in its own way and the soundtrack too definitely it is melancholy i would not call a charlie brown christmas happy until the very end because as is the case with charlie brown most of the time in the newspaper strip particularly back in the mid-1960s, you know, he was never going to kick the football. He was never going to win a baseball game. He was never going to meet the little red-haired girl. Every description you can think of for Charlie Brown starts with the phrase, he was never. <laughs> and yet, even though it looks like that's going to happen toward the beginning of a Charlie Brown Christmas, with the commercialized Christmas taking over, but to the end, it all works out happily. Yeah, I'll always remember that tree. I mean, even as a child, you're like that tree. Because I, I tell you, we had that tree once or twice in my house. So I always got a kick out of the way you hear the, the needles fall off <laughs> sound each time he picks it up and a few more needles fall off. Uh, tell me, because it was the first televised peanut special, was it not? And, and yes, I think it was. That's the, so, so even that's quite the story about how that came together. It wasn't supposed to be the first. It was entirely an accident. So let's back up a couple of years. Director-producer Lee Mendelson had worked in television in San Francisco at KPIX for a number of years and won awards for documentaries that he made for that channel. So Mendelssohn devoted the bulk of this planned one-hour special to following Charles Schultz around during a typical day in his life, driving his kids to school, going to the office, drawing the next cartoon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mendelssohn knew that he wanted some animated bits in this documentary. So he contacted Bill Melendez, who had been doing a very successful series of animated TV spots with the Peanuts characters for Ford Automobile in the early 1960s. The final piece of the equation was that Lee knew that he wanted, being a jazz fan himself, jazz music behind these animated segments. And so what happened next, we attribute to kismet or fate or the intervention of the gods or whatever your deity of choice. 
Lee's driving across the Golden Gate Bridge one day when what on the local jazz radio station should pop up, then Castrofe to the Wind, which was then Vince Guaraldi's very much admired and popular jazz radio hit. As soon as he could park, Lee found a payphone, called the radio station, got put in touch with Fantasy, called Fantasy, got put in touch with Guaraldi and offered Guaraldi the gig. And Guaraldi accepted, and he said he'd go home and noodle around some stuff. So a couple of weeks go by. Lee gets a phone call from Guaraldi. And Vince says, I've got something I want to play for you. And Lee said, OK, fine, I'll drive over. I can be there in an hour or so. And Vince said, no, 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 no. I got to play it right now while it's fresh in my mind. And Guaraldi played what later would become so famous as Linus and Lucy. Right. And again, telling this story decades later, Lee insists that at that moment, he knew that that was not only the missing element, but that if I had not gotten in touch with Vince, I'm not sure we ever would have had a franchise. Lee okay. felt that strongly about Guaraldi's music. When the documentary was finished, Lee wasn't able to sell it to any of the three big American TV channels. The network, CBS, ABC, and NBC, they all passed. So Lee tried a Hail Mary play. He cut the 60-minute show down to 30 minutes. Still wasn't able to sell it. Okay. We now move to the spring of 1965, when an advertising rep who had watched the documentary was approached by Coca-Cola, which wanted to emulate Timex, which had gotten some good action for sponsoring the previous year, 1964 special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Right. Coca-Cola wanted some of that Christmas action. So they said to Lee, the ad rep said to Lee, have you and Charles Schultz got a Peanuts Christmas special? And Lee said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Having no such thing, right? right? So the ad rep said, great. Coca-Cola wants it on their desk, a script treatment by Monday. This was a Friday. <laughs> so <a> Lee, hang <laughs> Lee hangs <laughs> up the phone, looks at it thoughtfully for a couple of moments, calls Charles Schultz and says, guess what? I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And Schultz said, what's that? And Lee said, that is what you are going to write this weekend. Well, Schultz took it graciously. Lee drove up and the two of them blue skied various things back and forth. And they did indeed have a script ready that they were able to send to the Coca-Cola execs the following Monday morning. It was already spring, early spring. And when Coca-Cola gave the go-ahead, Lee and Bill Melendez weren't even sure they had enough time to do a half-hour animated special that had to air that December. But they did manage. And when they finished, I, I envisioned the film reels still being wet in the, yeah, in the can. No Lee flew it to New York to screen it to the CBS execs who hated it. They didn't like the fact that the kid characters were voiced by actual children. This was novel up to this point in time. Mm -hmm. You think about, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle, the right, Flintstones, right. whatever. They're always voiced by adults. Mm -hmm. They didn't like the jazz music. They didn't like the religious content. Oh, they really didn't like the religious content. Mm -hmm. And Lee was sent packing well. He pulled out another Hail Mary play and booked an appointment with the head of CBS, 
And it must have been a heck of a pitch because the CBS had reversed the decision. And of course, as we know, the rest is history. The show aired as planned on December 9th, 1965, was a monster hit. And then miraculously, it came back the following year. And again. And it came back again the following year. And again, and again. And no wonder that show and Giraldi's music have become so important to so many people as part of their annual holiday tradition. People listen to that album when they put decorations on the tree or wrap gifts or bake Christmas cookies. It is ubiquitous. Yeah, not even particularly Christmassy if you think about it. I mean, it is now. It has become such. But if you think about it back and then, it didn't, it wasn't Christmas music per se, was it? No, it really wasn't. There are some Garaldi arrangements of familiar Christmas songs on the album, O Tannenbaum, the Christmas song, which, by the way, is not in the special, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Of course, the kid chorus sings, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mm-hmm. And there's there's that riff on the little drummer boy, My Little mm-hmm. Drum. But yes, uh, beyond those, Garaldi recycled themes that he had written for the documentary that never aired, most notably Linus and Lucy and uh, Frida with the natural curly hair and happiness and a few other little items that you hear snippets of very briefly, fleetingly during a Charlie Brown Christmas. But as you say, primarily, you know what it is? It's a Bossa Nova album. And, you know, not as in 1965, you would not have regarded it as a quote-unquote holiday jazz album per se, certainly not along the lines of what somebody like Kenny Burrell or a few other of the early jazz cats who released holiday albums did. And yet, today, it is the most famous holiday album, which 57 years on, I think is nothing short of miraculous. It is miraculous. Derek Bang, it's such a fascinating story. I have to leave it at that, but thank you so much. You're very welcome.